the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. (laughs) Welcome back to the latest episode of the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. As always, we will be your co-hosts. I'm Lizzie, and this is Dean. Now, if you find value in this episode, be sure to give us a like, subscribe, and drop a comment below on YouTube. Share us with your friends. Give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to take a screenshot and tag us on Instagram, just do that by putting in at flex underscore success. And while you're on Instagram, you can check out everything we offer from our eBooks to courses and programs. You can book a consultation or inquire about coaching via the link in our bio, or you can do that on our website. Enjoy the episode. George, it's so good to have you back. Welcome. Absolute pleasure, guys. As always, have been Croatia. Oh, has can, sorry, can, is he has he made it to that level now where we can just say George and everyone knows who he is? Flex success coach George, the king of all Georges, obviously, guys, as if you didn't know that. <laughs> um, we have we have something for you, George. That is a crowd of people applauding you. It is my new soundboard. Uh, that entered the podcast on the last Mm. episode that got released. So this is the second one. I can also do this to you. That's going to be applicable. (laughs) I've got drum rolls. I still don't have a fart sound, but it's coming. Thank the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) So prepare yourself for the soundboard. (laughs) You've been warned. It, it's a risky, it's a risky little uh, tool for Liz to have. I, I mentioned this on the last podcast we did that I'm, I'm, I'm equally nervous and excited by its implementation. <laughs> but um, yeah. Enough you, about me. For anyone that's watching on YouTube, yeah. did you just notice that I'm in this video twice? Oh, you can see the mirror in the background. You can see me dance in the background. Give us a back double buy. Imagine if I um wasn't wearing a. Imagine if I was wearing backless chaps. Could you imagine? And for those that are there, I just did this. <laughs> Went forward and showed the mirror. <laughs> at least, at least you're not as lean as you were on stage. We'd see straight through the hole. This is true. This what is. What do true. they call it? A cat, a cat butt, or something? Because oh. you know how. Yeah. So, what for people that uh, aren't aware of how extremely lean preppers get? They get so lean that when they're standing up, you can just see their butthole because there's not enough butt fat to cover it. So it's called a cat butt, isn't it? Because cats always have their yeah. buttholes showing yeah. when they walk up. I mean, even to this day, it still surprises me just how much fat you have between your bum cheeks. It's not until you remove that fat that you go, wow, there's a lot there. I love where this podcast is going. Mm. It's very rare that people are actually get in that condition as well. Just yeah. about, that's not something people are common to see nowadays. It's, so you're trying to tell me it's not common to see a man's asshole as he's standing there. <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? It depends, it depends what you do on a Saturday night. I mean, it might be very common or normal. <laughs> you know what? This is an awesome accidental kind of uh, segue into what we wanted to talk about today, which is buttholes. No, not buttholes, but managing symptoms of getting redonkulously lean. I believe redonkulous is the scientific term. Mm. Um, obviously, it can be for comp preppers, but it could just be for your average everyday person that wants to push the limits for whatever reason. So what an excellent segue. Isn't it? I mean, sure. <laughs> Transition so smooth. Speaking of getting really lean, I believe you are in comp prep right now. I am six and a half weeks out. So just kind of get into the nitty gritty stage, just starting to really 
feel it now. I, okay. I can't complain. Up until this point, it's been probably the best prep I've ever had. You know, <laughs> dietary fatigue, uh, training fatigue, mental fatigue, everything's been more or less very manageable until sort of this week where I'm starting to get a few more of them bad days creeping across the week. Like the ratio of good to bad, it's just starting to skew slightly. Mm. But hey, six weeks out, I'm not complaining. I'm used to feeling like this from 12 weeks out, so. Okay, what's different this time around? Proper periodization and timeline. That is the, the definitive thing when people ask me is what's been different. I've taken nearly 30 weeks to get ready for this show. It's been long, mm. slow. I've actually not needed diet breaks. I mean, I've had two training deloads just because they're planned in with our training block setup, but no diet breaks yet. Just been cruising in really nice, low and slow. No direct cardio, just managing step count. It's been as, I mean, it is ties in quite nicely to our topic of conversation where it's just as move, removing as much fatigue as possible. You know, I've only got the necessary to get me to where I am. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a concept that the old school mentality of bodybuilding or even extreme dieting in any case where you should theoretically be suffering more in order to achieve the result. When the no actually, pain, no gain. Yeah, yeah, but we want to do as little as humanly possible to get as maximum as we can so that when we have to go full throttle, it's still available to us. Mm, there's room to move. Still leverage there to do so at the end. Yeah. yeah, it's that weird concept of feeling like you're being somewhat lazy Yes. By, not, by not struggling more or doing more or yeah, you know yeah. what I've started clients in the past and they're like hey look I know I'm doing what I'm meant to do but I just this is feeling easy and I really want to be hungry I want to feel like I'm working for this I like I, I kind of get it but I at the same time I'm like there's gonna come a time where it's going to hurt if people get lean enough um and you want the opposite. So like pain will come eventually if you get to that point but why someone would want to feel pain like wouldn't wouldn't we want to get the results with the least work possible? I don't know. It doesn't. You would think. I think it's the same concept of like, um, yeah. If you don't, if like, you know, if, if you change one aspect, people feel like they haven't changed enough to to get the result. Whereas sometimes, I think it's actually. Let, let me flip into this and do a nutrition one because I think we're going to talk about nutrition first anyway. I think the success of something like keto, mm -hmm. which is all fat, no carbs, mm -hmm. is that it drops people out of their their behaviors that were previously not serving them well for their current physique because they're trying to change it. So they're like, whoa, this is all different. And they get a lot of motivation extrinsically. They get the results, which gives them some more feedback. And then eventually, obviously, we know they shit the bed because it's not a, a, sustainable, a, a sustainable approach. approach but, yeah. but yeah, it's that it's that lack of deviation from what they think they need to do. Okay, so you're saying that you think people want like overnight lifestyle revolutions instead of actually taking the time and having the patience and trust to make more like... Mm, small evolutions in their lifestyle yeah yeah because yeah, they feel like it's necessary mm. um and they don't understand the concept of sustainability yeah i think there's a lot of stigma around dieting and diet culture anyway where we're constantly told from like a young age that dieting sucks like losing body fat or getting in shape sucks it's it's so hard, yeah. yeah it's always drilled into us even like you look back at like the weight watchers days like those weird little food camps of people that you know help people get in shape quote quite economist um and, and you see that mental transition with people that have never been coached before not coached correctly or, or in a setup for them and it's so foreign and weird to them they can't change their way of thinking because it's you know a decade or longer of thinking this is exactly how it has to be in bodybuilders we see it with the dorian mentality like you said of wanting to suffer all the time it is just illogical like it's almost like a pride thing like they want to want to suffer I, I don't know if that kind of tells me they've got a little bit of like a mental psychological thing that we need to work on here first maybe but uh hmm. 
Mm. It could mean that maybe they're doing it to punish themselves, perhaps. And like part of punishment is feeling, because I know that I used to have a really poor relationship with food and exercise. And um, if I had a weekend of binging, which, you know, a decade ago I used to do, I would go to the gym to punish myself for having the binge. Like I've been so bad and I wasn't necessarily going to the gym to make strength progressions or to like celebrate my body or to balance my health or anything like that. I was doing it to inflict pain on myself because I've been bad. Mm. So maybe that's what, that's what people are doing with the dieting. Yeah. We've, we've had this conversation years ago too, Liz, about how you think like in order for somebody to be, at the very top of their game, they likely have some form of pain in their previous life to motivate them to, to do better. Right. Yeah. 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 So, mm. and, and like, it's very rare. I think like usually at the top of the game of anything, let's just say even if the top of the game is serious, somebody has the capacity to diet down to extremely low body fat. Is it usually, there's usually two people that are super successful at it. One, the people that are doing it because they've suffered in the past. And this is a way for them to find some form of value and, you know, whatever in their life. And the other ones are the genetic elite because mm-hmm. they get there because they're genetically elite. It's very uncommon to find like a, just a normal everyday person who's willing to suffer for, for the sake of suffering to then get to these levels. So mm. yeah, it's an, it's a chicken or the egg thing maybe too. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. Mm. Yeah. So tell us, George, um, do you say you wanted to start with nutrition? Yeah. If we wanted to open this can of worms and help people understand how they might want to manage dieting symptoms which is like extreme hunger high fatigue maybe shitty sleep we can categorize that into you know training maybe meal timing or all the subcategories that come under nutrition talk us through how you manage your dieting symptoms as you get super lean if we want to open the lid of the nutrition basket so if we look at it from like a the the larger scale first i think the best way you can give yourself as much hope as possible to kind of avoid these symptoms is setting up enough time to get in shape you know don't rush to try and make this a 12 14 16 week process give yourself an adequate amount of time uh the longer the lower the slower arguably the less likely you're going to run into these aggressive symptoms quickly and it can allow you to kind of pre-plan adjustments in your timeline of say right we're going to push for the deficit in this six to eight week block maybe and then we're going to try and program in a diet break here to offset some fatigue bring you back to maintenance and look at the timeline from a longer perspective before you start honing in on those acute dietary fatigue symptoms so you're just allowing yourself to have windows of time where you're not under so much stress not under so much hunger you can give yourself some of like a mental break and and enjoy some social situations with that time frame of more food as well uh, but that's like the first port of call really is making sure you, you set up your timeline appropriately uh, to kind of offset as much of the potential to have these harsh degrees of dietary fatigue as possible it is inevitable the leaner you get that you are going to get these symptoms that you can't avoid them completely but you can limit the time that you're going to experience them massively just by taking enough time to actually get in shape as opposed to rushing yeah Mm. i mean devil's advocate would say that the faster the better because then you don't have to diet for as long but that mentality would isn't necessarily wrong but the restrictions are far greater the faster you want results and often they're just not sustainable and people go from on a diet to off a diet the way you're talking about is more making it more manageable so that it's not like we're being aggressive with aggressive symptoms and then we're off a diet it's Mm. yes yeah yeah. Yeah. I um I think that when people say that, like I get it too. Like, why would you diet for 20 weeks when you can diet for 12 and just go a bit harder? 
Like, isn't that potentially better? Yeah, wouldn't you rather save for a house in two years rather than 20? Like, yeah, but you have to, like, fucking it's scrape. Well, it's, it's a reductionist yeah. sort of point of view in that they're saying, mm-hmm. well, they only associate one negative being time as being the thing that they're trying to mitigate there as opposed to, okay, well, yeah, how well can you save? Can you still live a life and, and save for that house? Or yeah. can we still perform at an optimal level to maintain as much muscle as possible and still live your life and whatnot? Yeah. And then there's a lot of other smaller variables that maybe they don't understand or don't know about in doing that aggressive deficit or doing that aggressive fat loss that are going to lead to issues, not just from the mental side of things of, you know, creating a tendency for poor relationship with food or just for you've had to suffer so hard, you're then most likely to rebound out of that in really poor manner, gain a lot more body fat and undo potentially all that hard work. But also there's a lot of physiological adaptations. Like if, if we're talking about natural individuals, your thyroid adaptation, that's going to be a huge, huge benefactor there. If you do like on a really aggressive mini cut, hormonal modifiers, your uh, sexual hormone production, specifically more so in females than males. There's a lot of other implications and negatives that have come from pushing really aggressively. Like, yeah, you'll get to your goal faster. And if you've got the mental willpower to do so, then kudos to you. Like, you know, great. But are you really factoring in all these other potential issues you're going to now face once you come out the back end of that? And how mm-hmm. do you know how to mitigate them correctly? Yeah. Yeah. There's also no time in a short fat loss to really discuss how to get out of it either. Cause it's just in, get it done, get out. And then the get out phase is usually done just as erratically or as, as, as intensely. Yeah. I guess it's like trying to straighten deck chairs on the Titanic. Like it's, <laughs> it's really short term way of thinking. We need to think more than two months from now, what happens in six months, what happens in 12 months. Yeah. Mm. To, to put some quick numbers on this, just so people, cause it's, it's all well and good to say like make your dieting phase longer or long enough. I uh, recently held a little uh, workshop for SDC Fit on contest prep and whatnot. And there was a part on there where I did uh, about setting up the appropriate timeline. And there's a reference point. The timeline that we started with an individual who had to lose nine kilos of fat was can be done in 12 weeks relatively like comfortably, safely, if they were about 90 kilos, because it's about 1% per week of their body weight being lost per week. But by the time that we accounted for all of the things you mentioned before, George, it was a 24-week prep. So basically doubled. Uh, and because that was because and- we wanted time to not die. We wanted time to deload. We wanted to account for the potential for like mistakes, slowing down metabolic adaptations that we're not aware of that are going to occur until they occur. Neat reductions. Neat reductions. Yeah. You know, fucking having uh, a meal at Christmas or whatever yeah, it may yeah, be, yeah. you know, yeah, it, was, gotcha. it was double the time. Hey, for people who just like a super quick um, description of, because you mentioned refeeds. Maybe one of you two can talk us through what a refeed is. But before we get there, I'll set it up like this. Uh, Refeed is part of an umbrella term called intermittent dieting. Like let's say someone wants to lose 10 kilos. This means they would be in an intentional weight loss phase for a period of time, maybe, I don't know, three weeks. And then they would take a break from that, then go back and take a break from that, then go back to fat loss and taste. So they're intermittently dieting, maintaining, dieting, maintaining. Whereas continuous dieting would mean you're always in an intentional weight loss phase. You remain in a deficit until you reach your goal. So a refeed is one way to do intermittent dieting. Go. What's a refeed? George. Um, uh, The refeed is essentially a window of time where you're increasing your caloric intake to offset potential negative adaptations, uh, maybe physiological reasons or mental reasons. It is essentially just a time where you increase your food, you're eating more food, you're not then in the hypocaloric state, you're not in a calorie deficit and you're not burning fat, but you're also not gaining fat. 
the idea is to get yourself to a baseline so that you can offset those negative adaptations and get some kind of a physiological baseline back in, get rid of some fatigue, wash off some stress, ready to then set yourself up for the next block ahead. The timeline of the refeed can vary from a single day refeed, like a 24 hour refeed, all the way up to a seven to 10 day refeed. Again, that's specific to your timeline. You know, how much time do you have to play with? How much time do you have to utilize this? How close are you to the goal? Maybe in sort of the back end of a prep or maybe the back end of a holiday prep for a lifestyle client. You might not have the, the you know, the time frame to pull off the body fat you need to implement a seven to 10 day diet break. So maybe just implementing a one or two day refeed on the weekend could suffice enough of an offset of, of fatigue adaptation there to continue and through into the goal. Yeah, awesome. Um, refeeds and diet breaks and cheat meals and recovery diets and reverse diets are all discussed in the macro tracking course. You can find that in the link in bio if anyone's interested. And I talk about the difference between um, a refeed and cheat meals, and they are very different. Would either of you like to talk us through the differences? Or well, I can. Well, I mean, you can. You wrote the, the content. Oh, so let's do you it know, best. Too. Oh, for me, just as a quick reference, I think we just brushed the diet break very quickly there. Typically, yeah, the refeed is somewhere between that one and five, one and three days. And technically speaking, I think a diet break is associated with a seven-day period spent back at calorie maintenance. For me, in a prep or clients of mine, I call it a diet break anywhere beyond three days because typically that's when the psychological fatigue and all that is washed off by day three. Okay. Um, so I just I will say your diet break, you know, or extended refeed. Okay. I call a diet break if it's a week or longer. Yeah, and that's technically yeah. correct. That is that refeeds is the right and diet time. breaks are the same yeah. thing. It's just one's longer. Yeah. I just don't want to give my client the uh, the forecast of hey, diet breaks coming here, and they think they're getting seven days. Right. For me, it always says <laughs> now I've just started writing elongated refeed phase. Right. Elongated extended, refeed. or extended refeed phase or something like that. You know. Semantics. Um, but yeah, the major difference here is that a refeed and or diet break is calculated, it's measured, it's back to calorie maintenance, controlled. It's not an opportunity just to eat whatever you want without conscious thought. Uh, whereas a cheat meal is typically associated with eating foods that people haven't consumed in a long period of time. They're typically high fat, high carb, highly palatable, uh, sometimes done subconscious in regards to the fact that they're not mindfully eating. Uh, it's probably a more appropriate term. And there's sometimes an inability to switch off their, their eating capacity in a cheat meal versus a refeed is again, controlled measured. Mm, cheat dose. meals look a lot like binges. Absolutely. And there's always this mindset when someone does a cheat meal, that food is good or bad. And we eat good food when we're dieting and bad food when we're cheating. And it really sets up a poor foundation for balance and a good relationship with food. And it's not, it's not that we can never eat. I like I'm avoiding like the plague saying bad food, like, it's not that we should never be eating foods that are low in nutrients that clean eaters would consider bad food. It's that when we do, we make sure that it fits within our targets. We make sure we consume it in moderation with mindfulness at a time that's appropriate. Maybe we don't want to eat chocolate when we're starving. Maybe we want to have it when we have a craving and we eat food that fills us up, that helps us reach our goals when we're starving. Mm. Yeah. Or in the absence of other humans and communication i think is another good one for people the cheat meal mentality is to sit there and smash food right like the cheat meal is about the food the refeed or the diet break is about the ecosystem as far as i'm concerned right gotcha yeah, yeah and also i discuss free meals as one of the bonus lessons in the macro tracking course and the idea there is like there's a little bit of overlap between cheat meals in the sense that it's not a fully tracked meal, but it's very different in the sense that free meals are still mindful. Yeah. They're still uh, like sensible choices, sensible portions. We want to be sharing them with people so that we can um, 
like maintain our social relationships. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I often spruik that as like um, an enjoyable meal in the absence of gluttony. Oh, I like it. Don't eat like an asshole. Maybe. I do. I do. Some also some say gluttonous pig. It depends who I'm talking to. You know. Maybe don't. Don't. <laughs> if I was eat. talking to George. I'd be like, don't be a gluttonous pig. You know. If I'm talking to somebody, I've got a little bit less of a relationship. Not really sure what their psyche's like. I'm like, hey. Do you think that's why I'm like Vegemite? You either hate me or love me because I would say don't eat like an asshole to Everybody anyone. Everybody loves Vegemite. They don't. I hate Vegemite. Do you like Vegemite, George? Uh, I'm guessing English would be Marmite. I'm guessing that's what you get. I think Marmite might be from New Zealand. I don't know. But, yeah, that's similar enough. Do you yeah. like it? Yeah, it's similar. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's, it's yeast extract. Team hate. Yeah. Or bo- bo- bovel. It doesn't matter. What is it? There's another one called bovel or bovel. It was the original, I think. Oh, was it? Which actually made for the purpose of stock creation. Right. And then Vegemite is a spreadable yeast extract. It's disgusting. I don't know how anyone deals with it, honestly. It, it's When Dean eats it, I was like, you can wait a week before you kiss me because that's fucking Literally. Sad. Zoe does the same thing. If she ever has it on toast, I'm steering clear of her for the whole day. I don't want to know. I'd rather kiss garlic breath, honestly. Maybe because I'm the one with the garlic breath. <laughs> I'd rather garlic breath. At least that smells nice. Yes. It doesn't even brush your teeth. Like it, it, the smell's in the breath. It's not even in the mouth. It's so bad. So bad. Anyways, I've, I've derailed us. So let, we, let me let me pose this question to George and get back on track. Is it about Vegemite? <laughs> no, it's not. Cat I mean, house. unless he wants to put it on toast during a refeed. <laughs> okay. Now, there will be some people who say that refeeds and diet breaks are pointless in that. There's evidence to suggest now that we don't see like, you know, sustained hormonal adaptations, hormonal adaptations going back to normal fair. But why would somebody maybe benefit from these from a managing, you know, the symptoms of extreme dieting perspective? Well, it gives you a time window of not suffering from dietary stress, which is one of the, the main negatives of, of being in a calorie deficit. It sucks. It's hard to do. Um, and implementing diet breaks or refeeds are a perfect way to give you that from a mental state. If, we, if we're saying that the data is now a little bit conflicting and that we're not seeing what we originally thought, at least that mental leverage for the client is going to offer them a huge positive that's going to help allow them to continue pushing on in their goal. Whereas if we said, oh, the data doesn't support it, don't need them, there's a potential for the lack of adherence or for them to completely drop off the diet if you're pushing them too hard or too fast for that individual to cope. Uh, so I think, still think there's a, there's a plausible reason for them to gain a mental uh, positive here in adherence, specifically more so than anything. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and the most recent study, uh, ICECAP is the acronym, showed that uh, dieters' moods had improved when they were, like intermittent dieters had better moods than continuous dieters. Yeah, And um, like the, the original study, the Matador study was done on just obese men. So it's not really the population of people that we're talking to here. Um, but there were huge improvements between intermittent dieters and continuous dieters, not just in, I'm not necessarily talking about mood, but uh, their ability to maintain the weight lost mm. when they had breaks. <clears throat> There's light at the end of the tunnel. Like imagine going to the gym, you're there for an hour and you're doing chest press for the whole hour. Imagine the quality by the end. We need to take breaks between sets, and that's how I look at refeeds. Yeah. yeah. Even the perception, I think, of the diet difficulty was uh, improved mm. in individuals that do that in ice cap as well. Mm. The other thing we have to realise too is even though ice cap used athletes, they still weren't athletes in extreme levels of low body fat. Right. Um, so when we still haven't got anything to say, like our cohort of individuals that we're talking about here, either contest prep athletes or people that are doing like extreme dieting phases, 
that we say, hey, we can definitely say these don't offer benefit for these reasons. Probably can for the physiological adaptations like thyroid and sex hormones and all that kind of stuff. Sex hot. Yeah. Um, but, but in regards to like, yeah, managing performance, managing diet fatigue, perception of fatigue, perception of difficulty, all of those things, um, even just from a feedback mechanism for me to see how somebody responds to carbohydrates from a look perspective, you know? As, again, like training performance during the diet break or the refeed, the sessions you'll have in comparison to what you've just had while you're in a deficit are going to be far surpassed you know, what you've just been used to for the last four, five, six weeks. You know, numbers will go back up. You'll feel your pumps again in the gym. Training will get back to some kind of a baseline. And so they, they, I think there's still plenty of plausible reasons to include them, uh, despite mm-hmm. what you know, data may not suggest. But even if you said to someone, hey, look, let's put you in a deficit for take us 20 weeks to get to the goal start to finish let's go or we could take 30 weeks and you could do four weeks of dieting and have a diet break here and then do another four weeks and the client will go four weeks of dieting or 20 weeks of dieting Hmm. i think i know what looks a bit more adherable and more um enjoyable and and actually Hmm. doable in in the timeline here Hmm. yeah Yeah, i mean i even personally found the re-entry into the deficit post a diet break fun and again motivating because it's kind of like, I'm glad I've done that, but I'm ready to go again. You know, like, can, yeah. we, can we start this? Like now? a refresh button. Yeah. And there's always Joe, like, one more day, motherfucker. I can see people um, at the beginning of a dieting phase, like, super pumped about it. They're ready to go. They're really motivated. Um, and I think it's a bad choice to make long-term decisions off temporary motivations or feelings. Because when somebody starts that, they might get a couple of weeks and be like, oh, fuck. I wish I chose intermittent dieting. And you know what, honey, it's not too late. You can change your mind. So that's all right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's the, joys of refeeds. that's the joys of refeeds, though, is that you can auto-regulate them as and where appropriate. There's no, mm. though we might plan to have diet breaks or, you know, plan refeeds here or there, they, you know, as and when they're needed, you can auto-regulate them in anywhere. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you can be, what's what I'm looking for, reactive with the diet breaks instead of proactive. Yep. Yeah. What are you? Are you reactive or proactive? A little bit of both. I like to pre-plan ahead and then make conscious decisions on whether they're actually applicable at the time. So everyone's under the understanding that, hey, we've planned this in, but there's no guarantee you're going to take this diet break here. We'll see where you land prior and then we'll make that decision on the, you know, sort of the week leading in, see where your fatigue's at, see where you're feeling mentally before, you know, suddenly doing it. Because I can use myself as an example on this prep. I've not had a single diet break since starting, although we plan to have two, but because the dietary fatigue was just simply not there and my management of the hunger fatigue has been much better than it has been in the past, they've just not been warranted. So I've just cruised through comfortably. Awesome. Mm. What are some of the strategies you found more beneficial for managing hunger, that being one of the symptoms? So the non-orthodox one first, (laughs) nicotine. (laughs) This is not something I'm just broadcast everyone should use nicotine no not at all not everyone should start smoking cigarettes again that's not the message i'm trying to send uh, but if you feel you have the willpower to cope with something that is highly an addictive substance um nicotine has shown fantastic efficacy to suppress appetite and also benefit you from a nootropics perspective so it kind of kills two birds with one stone there you're not just helping to offset dietary fatigue but also mental fatigue uh, from that nootropic stimulation it's actually used in currently at the moment in alzheimer's and dementia studies in america they're trialing it and um, so it has got plausible reason to be used but remember highly addictive substance arguably you're not smoking anything so is there degenerative health effects it's still up for debate the data on vaping isn't exactly 
concrete, but there are other more means of using nicotine, nicotine gum, nicotine lozenges, sprays, patches that could all offer some help. Now, the more orthodox ways of managing hunger and the, the normal ways people would uh, look here. So meal timing is something that I've concreted in having routine, having habitable eating times. Your body knows when it's time to eat. Your internal clock knows, hey, this is when we eat. I'm getting ready for that meal now. And you can offset having like hunger signals in between. If you're, you know, spend three, four weeks getting this concrete routine in place, your body comes into a habitual state where it knows even if you might be actually physically hungry here, you can kind of offset it mentally because you know your meal time is here, here and here. And that routine is concrete by that point. Um, but trying to spread your meals out roughly on like a, an average of two to three hours per day. Obviously, you have to factor in your, your when you wake up, and when you go to sleep and kind of try and balance them out evenly as possible. So that you're not spending extended windows of time where you've skipped a meal and now you're trying to make up food and having two meals combined into one, having a larger influx of food is going to inevitably lead to you being hungrier later because of the expansion of the stomach and the amount of food volume you've consumed and that drop off afterwards. So meal timings is, is such a, a basic thing to do, but carries quite a lot of benefit here. Uh, and it's overlooked by a lot of people, uh, people with busy lives, busy schedules, often think, that's ah, fine, I'll just eat when I can. But that could be one of the main ways you offset dietary fatigue there, just by with consistency and meal timings. Mm. It's worth mentioning that although I totally agree meal timing is really important and something Dean and I have maintained even when we travel, um, it's uh, what you're not saying um, which which is clear to me, but I just want to make it clear to all the listeners that's meal timing is not what causes weight loss. You're saying that it just helps for hunger management. Mm. Yeah. Yes, completely. It's not gonna it's not gonna offer you any better plausible reason. Calories in, calories out across the day is the definitive factor for fat mm. loss. Are you in a deficit or are you not? Mm. But just managing those meal timings is gonna simply help you manage the hunger better. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So have you have you found any benefit in yourself or in uh, clients of yours with managing say the macronutrient distribution of each meal like whether or not somebody has carbohydrates protein and fats or just protein and fats or just protein and carbs or whatever it may be so in the beginning of the day my current setup is obviously PED related um but i sort of go with protein and fat meal as first meal of the day um, being a little bit more cetaceous a little bit slower digesting and carb sources for me that's a PED related uh, adjustment in my nutrition setup but the purpose of using proteins and fats in that one meal there they're obviously slower digesting so they're going to offer more satiety going to cause you to be fuller for longer so if a client's total daily macros are on the decline here you can maybe look at utilizing putting away more carbohydrates and leaving fats and proteins a little bit higher there to increase satiety and increase fullness across the day yeah yeah i am um... This, this, this is this is for sure one of the ones that I've seen one of the greatest amount of like individual variability in regards to individual variability. in regards to how each person changes their preference for macro setups and also a little bit of the meal timing but mainly the meal timing comes down to whether or not they're having three meals or five meals it's not significant right like um, and maybe smaller humans will have the three because we want them to get a, a sufficient protein serve like small females at each meal as opposed to grazing on 50 grams of meat each time. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, if some individuals find like, you know, I would rather have like a larger carbohydrate meal once per day versus having three smaller ones and so on. And, and none of it really matters. That's the cool thing. For when the end result. To, when yeah. it comes to fat, fat loss, yeah. yeah. What does matter is setting it up in a way that supports that person's preferences. That person's preferences. Mm. 
with one small asterisk for people that are like getting into the real nitty gritty of uh, fat loss and they really want to try and offset muscle loss by driving some form of performance outcome, we may say that it's slightly advantageous to push or partition those carbohydrates around training just to ensure recovery is a little bit better. But those are details for the pointy end. There is, yeah, and there's something that you really probably going to be talking about. Uh, that was going to be my caveat there, that just by reducing your carbohydrates and increasing protein fats may seem favorable from hunger, but you also have to factor in then training performance and how that may suffer if you do just remove them all entirely. We know keto diet people will understand how hard it is to train or maintain performance in that state. Mm. Yeah, I, I refuse to have a smaller than 80 gram cream of rice. So every yeah, time, just, every time, what's the point? Every time my uh, carbs got reduced, I just decided like, all right, I'm just going one meal less carbs so that I can part, put, push more of it back into the cream of rice. You loved your cream of rice. We don't have a microwave. I still do. Here. I just have, yeah. It's just yeah. A, no yeah. microwave or oven in this Airbnb that we're staying in. Yeah. No cream of rice more, for you. Your potion, you can manage it to the right consistency with just hot water without a microwave. But it's, it's so, if you go too far the other way, there's no saving it. Oh, look, you know, I've become pretty good at even making them on the stove. But the whey protein that I had when we first got here in Croatia was pretty dog shit. And I was like, eh, it ain't worth it. Um, now I've got a decent one. So it'll, it'll be back in sometime soon. The other thing is sometimes finding rice flour in other languages is just too annoying. Oh, my God. It's so hard looking at supermarket products in Croatia. Oh, my God. The letters, they, there is not enough vowels in the creation, the Croatian language. There's a J next to a Z, and then it goes to an S and then a T. It's like, how? Yeah. What? No. Yeah. Like even when we didn't understand Portuguese in Portugal, some of the words make sense. So you're kind of like, I'm pretty sure that I know what that is. Yeah. You know? I, th I always think it's so strange, the variety. And you all think most of these European countries' language will kind of come through from Latin at some point. How the hell we've got so much variance between them all. You'd think they'd be a little bit more similar. Yeah. Actually, Portuguese made me laugh a lot because... Um, don't offend Portuguese people now. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not going to. I'm, I don't know. Maybe you'll be offended. That's okay. That's on you. Yeah. Um, the, they were colonized by the Spanish for 60 years. And obviously with colonization, they're forced to speak the colonizer's language. And so when they got, um, they were made independent, they didn't want to speak Spanish anymore. So they changed the language. And by change, I mean, like they slightly pronounce the word a little bit differently and they call it a different language. Mm. And like, I understand some Spanish words and absolutely no Portuguese except for like, please and thank you. And uh, pastel de nada, which is mm. Portuguese tart. Um, but I still feel like the way they pronounce things can't understand it. But in writing, I'm like, oh, that's one letter different to the Spanish word. I know what that is. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, Portuguese, you really changed it so much. Good for you. <laughs> sort of petty change. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was some of them was literally a letter. Yeah, it's a letter. Like, okay. Yeah. Exactly. A letter, but a completely different pronunciation. You're like, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but going back to our topic, what were some things that you found helpful for diet fatigue when you were prepping for your show that you came first and in your category? <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> Um, for me, I personally note that it's typically better to have a slightly larger meal less frequently. Like I would rather have five larger meals than six smaller meals okay. more frequently. Like there's, there's a range for me, like, uh, like towards a certain period, like that three hour mark. Like if I'm having to eat like longer than that and not that fun, if I'm having to eat shorter than that, but eat really small meals, I kind of just finish the meal and I'm like, I'm not satisfied enough. You're still hungry. Unless I was driving volume through the roof, but then. There comes a point in time where you just have to deal with it. Yeah. But um, this is a 
This is a difficult one for people to implement, but my best strategy for managing hunger was honestly to just reframe how I thought about what hunger was. Okay. Most people associate hunger with negativity. Yeah. I associated it with something that helped me achieve the goal that I was trying to achieve. So yeah. every time I was hungry, I was like, good, I should be, you know? Yeah. And then, um, yeah. That's, uh, that, uh, that was one of my uh, next points to roll on to, was reframing your viewpoint of what actually being hungry means. I got this one from Austin Stout in America, one of... Uh, who does the podcast with Joe and he, he drilled it into himself so much that that horrible, awful gut wrenching feeling of hunger was actually a really good thing. It meant fat was leaving that he, by some ulterior motive to the goal, the hungrier you're getting, the leaner you're getting in days when you feel awful, when you're in a diet, you're going to wake up probably the best you've ever looked. Chances are. So it, it kind of ties in quite nicely with the, the worse you're feeling, the more hunger you're suffering the linear you're kind of getting. So having that twist on it, that this is intuitive to the goal and this is necessary to, to some extent to get to the goal is a great way of kind of taking away that negative connotation to the feeling. And eventually it's not something that happens. You just go, Oh, it's a positive thing. Great. Yeah. yeah I like being hungry. It doesn't happen like that. But over mm. time, you, you almost learn to ignore it because you've got such a positive outlook on it now. Mm. Mm. You learn to live with it, but that's not to say that he would be chasing feeling that way. It's just that no. when you eventually can't avoid it any longer. Yeah, unless you're a sadist just... like Brandon Kemper. Oh, he loves it, doesn't he? He um he told a story uh, on, on ours. I'll refer to it very quickly for those in that he got to the end of his prep, his condition was done. It was time to start adding food back in he's to, nutty. to pull fatigue back, right? So yeah. he's like, cool. I've, I've made made the condition. I need time to pull the fatigue back, lessen the deficit. But as he started to lessen the deficit, he started adding food back in. He started to feel less hungry. And he was like, this isn't right. So he started going Was towards, he still prepping? Still prepping. Oh, okay. He started removing voluminous foods and implementing things that were a little bit more calorie dense so that he didn't feel like he was full because he felt like he was going against the diet. He wanted to feel the pain. Yeah. This is actually, uh, this, this goes alongside the mental concept of, um, uh, or idea of reframing too, is that I stopped chasing extreme fullness a while back, but definitely in this last prep, because I also associated that with being overfull, overfed, not like in control of even just stomach control and stuff like that. I didn't like it. So I never really chased fullness because to me, then fullness was like almost a negative in that I felt like I'd overconsumed or that I couldn't get keep control of my stomach from an aesthetics perspective. So um, that also helped me not chase crazy volumes. Okay. All right. Um, one other one for me, and then just some little tidbits. People have probably heard these before, like eating with small spoons, uh, putting the spoon down every time I took a mouthful as opposed to putting three or four mouthfuls in one after the other. With like it. mindfulness practices. Yeah. Um, and another one I've actually even noticed now, um, because I, I, I'm no longer like super hungry or anything, but I still would like to eat more food. Mm. Um, yeah, I also decrease the size of my mouth. No, no. <laughs> We're laughing at George here because George like uses a shovel instead of a teaspoon. And he's like, what? I have a big mouth. I'm like, bro, look at this. Look at how much food is on your spoon. It's not a big mouth. <laughs> it never feels like I'm fathomable. It never feels like I can't chew. Or you don't chip my face. Yeah. You know? Man. Uh, <laughs> the other one there was yeah, I actually um, found enjoyment in eating some of my food cold. Because yes. when I would heat it up, it would make it taste extra delicious. Yeah. Um, it's like spice. There's a fine line. Some spice will enhance flavor. Too much spice will decrease flavor. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with temperature. Like really hot coffee, Liz, shit coffee. But like a little bit below boiling into the 80 degree range, perfect coffee. But you Where's didn't want... Huh? 
got to let the kettle settle down off the boil first. You have to drink it straight hey, out of the kettle as well. I need, a, I need to get that on a T-shirt. Let the kettle settle. <laughs> hey, that needs to be a hashtag. Nice. Um, but, Dean, you're saying that you prefer to eat your food cold because you that's not your preference. It was, and, no, because it's less flavoursome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't want your food to be so delicious that it's hard to stop. You want to finish the meal being like, yeah, that was enough. Yeah, like everybody knows that hot rice tastes better than cold rice because cold rice goes a little hard again. Yeah. yeah. So I would sometimes have my rice meals cold. Is this a face of disagreement, George? Do you like? Yeah, see, I now this is coming from uh, previous preps. I used to prep whilst I was working on site and construction. So all my food was cold. And I built up this love for cold rice, cold chicken, rice and vegetables. And it's still something I'll do now is I'll let I'll cook my food hot and I'll let it go cold before I eat it because I, <laughs> I just love the taste. I don't know why. Maybe I'm strange. <laughs> no, there, there is. A, so like I preferred my beetroot rice chicken meal with cold, like cold. But I would actually, if I had to really choose, I'd rather have fresh rice and then cold beetroot on top. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. You know? Well, I feel impartial about all cold food. And I think for the same reason, I spent so long bringing all my food to uni. Like I didn't have a microwave. I think there's probably microwaves on campuses now, but you know, this is when the dinosaurs are around. I was at uni. Um, and so because I ate my food cold out of containers, I just like, I don't know, do you want to heat it up? Do you want to not heat it up? I like it the same, but rice, I'm going to say warm better. Yeah, I, I think, again, like this is, we're probably talking to our own bias here, though, and that we've all done it a fair few times. I think if you spoke to the majority of people who have eaten a hot pasta dish versus a cold pasta dish, typically that the hot one is nicer. Mm. Not to say that the cold one isn't nice. It is, and that's the point. You still want to enjoy it. it you just, it's just something that I've noticed. that Because can... there's personal preference. Figure out when you're really hungry what you like a bit less, but you're not going to gag on it. And that is a good hunger management strategy. Yeah, or even, you know, is salt and pepper enough? Yes. Does salt, pepper and mustard taste better? Probably. But do we really need to put mustard on every dish? Mm. You know, that's about not, um, ties back to a post you did, Liz, on Instagram about not making every meal a party. Mm. I think this is really important in a, in a deficit. There are times that you have, I think you have to be quite uh, intuitive in the situation. There are times where putting a little bit more effort into your food is going to make it more favorable and you're going to enjoy the meal, take more time. It's going to give you some kind of positive benefit here. But if all your food is like a, a la carte five-star meal looking, it's going to make dieting a lot harder. And on the flip side of that, you don't just want to be eating plain chicken and boiled rice every day because it's going to suck and you're not yeah. going to want to eat. You're going to want to eat other foods and that in uh, tendency to binge is going to increase or cheat on the diet. So you've got to kind of find your middle ground. Like, I find a 70-30% mix is kind of nice. I've got my kind of plain bodybuilding meals that are just, I know that they're fuel. That's a, it's a fuel source that does the job. And then one or two meals at the end of the day when I have more time, like my cream of rice, I might put a little bit more effort into it. So I look forward to that meal to close off the day, day's mm. diet. In yeah, you and make cream of rice cakes now, this guy. Cream of rice cakes? Mm. That's, yes. that's, that's the change, you see. That's, the, that's a prep change. Oh, you're going to need like, to Hang on a minute. What if I take this cream of rice and turn it upside down? That'll be better. <laughs> the amount of people that message me, like, how have you done this? I'm like, bro, I literally just cooked cream of rice and just turned it upside down and took it out of the top. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. I was just like, this is a presentation trick. Oh, I love this literally. so much. But it I changes the meal so much. Yeah. That's a, I did, um, I put up one the other day too and said core cake and showed the consistency of it. And they're like, man, how did you do this? I'm like, I let it set for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I packed it in my bag and ate it later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys are geniuses. Uh, I love it. Funny. I love it. Um, All right. So yeah, we've done meal timing. Mm -hmm. We've done palatability. Palatability. Size of meals has been rough, uh, roughly, 
briefly or briefly. Briefly, or whatever was one you want to put together. <laughs> briefly mentioned. Briefly and roughly, roughly. Yep. <laughs> um, we've done stims. We can probably sub in some caffeine uh, as well, potentially in between meals uh, to offset yes. some hunger, just like you've done with nicotine. Uh, refeeds mm. diabetes. Yeah, um, but you don't want to start with all of these things, right? It's like <laughs> as things get really difficult and you need to pull out another tool, then whip it out. Yeah. You know? I also think it's important to um, have a, a conversation and set boundaries on what your starting point is and what your level of, I suppose, like, uh, like extension on that is or like what, what your maximum sort of tolerable amount you're willing to, to, to accept is, like nicotine, you know, like, if I'm going to use gum, am I going to cap myself at four milligrams a day or two milligrams mm. a day, whatever it may be, uh, because it can quickly get out of hand. Yeah, yeah. I um, had a friend years ago, Shuni, and um, she <laughs> decided that chewing gum helped her not snack in the office between meals. And she was like, do you think that's a problem? I was like, no, like if you're chewing some gum between like breakfast and lunch, mm. it's fine. And she had these jaw problems and she started getting bloated. I was like, what's happening? And I was talking to her about it. She ended up putting a whole packet of gum in her mouth at one time. And she had this big ball of like sugar-free, which was giving her not just the chewing, the fact that her um, stomach was getting ready for food and no food was actually arriving, but also all of the artificial sweeteners at such a high dose all the time um, was making her shit herself. Mm. I was like, like just because one piece of gum is fine doesn't mean a whole packet at the time. Like just because a bit of nicotine is okay, like let's not let's not go crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the gum one's a perfect example of this because you can easily start titrating up through. It's, it's in between every single meal. All of a sudden, then it's before you eat your meal. When you wake up straight away, you're just yamming in the gum. Like there is still calories in chewing gum. I know it's only small, it's only minor, but you have to weigh in. If you're going through like three or four packs a day, like that is calories that are going to contribute to your deficit. Um, So you've got to be careful with them hidden numbers there. Just because it says sugar-free doesn't mean it's completely fine. And like you said, chewing gum stimulates the brain's thought mechanism that food is coming. So your digestive enzymes get ready to receive food. So you're potentially going to increase hunger there as Mm. opposed to... Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a good asterisk for people that aren't aware. Sugar-free gum doesn't equal calorie-free. Sugar-free Slurpees or ice drinks doesn't mean calorie-free. And sugar-free syrups at coffee stations doesn't mean calorie-free. Oh, actually, I talk about um, sugar-free, no added sugar, whatever products in the macro tracking course in the bonus lesson, Hidden Calories. And some people are smashing them, right, because all all of the sugar alcohol. So if, if you like Queen's no sugar maple syrup, even like the Peter's no sugar ice cream, mm. those Gullens biscuits, the double D lollies, the Aussie bodies, low carb bars. There's so many. So check out that yeah, lesson. If 90% you the of food goods that are supposed to have sugar in them that then have a low sugar or no sugar uh, tag on them have just had replaced with some other shit. Yeah. It's funny because the people who buying them are usually the calorie conscious ones and they're yeah. the ones getting fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Heaps of ways to manage uh, extreme dieting symptoms there from nutrition. We did want to talk about training as well, but I feel like time is getting on, and maybe we might make that a separate podcast. Is that okay? I'm willing to have George back on. Okay. I think you can add a lot of more personal, in-depth context to the training side of things as well if you do mm. it a separate. Episode there. Yeah, yeah. One more on the nutrition side of things, then if we if we can just caveat that. Yeah. Plate size matters. You can trick your brain into thinking you're eating more food by not putting it on such a big plate. 
don't have so much white space or whatever color your plate is around it. Reduce the size down so that it looks like a big meal on top of a smaller plate or a bowl or something like that. Mm. And don't use a shovel to put all of it in your mouth at one time. Yeah, no ladles for utensils. I still eat with a small spoon now. Efficiency is my game. <laughs> You're busy. Can, can I just jump on George's side here and say it was in the peak of his off-season at that stage. Getting yeah. food down was more of a challenge. So we actually inverted all of these things we're talking about and went, you know what, I'm going to shovel and swallow as opposed to small teaspoon of chew. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the excuse I'm going to use. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with that. Um, now, we like to wrap up every episode with a tip uh, to help people be less shit. If you could summarise this or just, you know what, it doesn't even have to be relevant. What would be one tip that you would give to the listeners on how to be less shit? I wish I'd been more prepared for this one. Um, don't do drugs. <laughs> Didn't you just say do nicotine and caffeine? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the hypocrisy was the play on that. <laughs> so I think my biggest tip, if we kind of relate it to what we've been talking about, is don't uh, underestimate the time it takes for you to get in shape and don't overestimate what you can do in a certain window of time. Mm. I like it. Great tip. Um, we also like to share something worth sharing with listeners as well. Could I feel be... we should bunny hop it, given the macro course is just... Okay. I was I... just about to say a perfect example to slip I said bunny hop. I meant hijack. Yeah, that's right. Because if we bunny hopped it, we wouldn't talk about it. Yeah, let's not bunny hop it. Let's hijack it. Right. Let's hop right back. <laughs> George, would you like to share that? So we have now got a pro version of the macro tracking course available on the Flex Success website. It is fantastic. I have just started working my way through it now myself. Uh, how long until it's available to the public? Liz? Now. It's available now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the email threw me off. I said it wasn't. Oh, yesterday um, I gave current students exclusive access, but it is now available. Hmm. Yeah. Well, if anyone wants to check it out. And by the time this episode gets released, which isn't today. It's yes. Be. Yeah. Um, there, we made it, we wanted to rejig it because the other one was great and we got awesome feedback, but it just could have been a little bit clearer. We wanted to open up a comment section so people could ask questions, which you now can. It's lifetime access. We cover a little bit more. We didn't talk about free meals in the other ones or give kitchen scale hacks and time-saving hacks and, and all of that. Jazz. Yeah, it's not like the logistical part of this is how you use a tracking application. Right. No, there is the there practical, is, there but is it's, that. it's not only that. But it's the questions that then people have, like, as they go on through. Yeah, like, oh, like, but I'm going to go eat my parents. Like, how do I do that? How do I eat well, out you, and track? Here are your four options, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, plenty of applications. Pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that, George. That was a good one. Great share, mate. Really good <laughs> share. <laughs> All right. Now, soundboard is coming back out. Are you ready to introduce Hot Topic? I sung a song. I created a song to introduce this segment. Yeah. Have you heard it yet? Have I not? I've, I've been catching up with all the latest podcasts. Have I been missing it? It's only in the very last one. The very last ah, episode that got released. Right. Yeah. All right. You're all right. Ready? New segment. How good's my voice? That was a vibe. Love it. Perfect. <laughs> Do you have the wiggles in England? Wiggles. Okay, that's, that's a no. In Australia, I feel they are an Australian well, as an brand. Australian, we thought that they were a global sensation. I thought the Wiggles were global, <laughs> honestly. Um, my assistant Kay, I was like, yeah, you know the hot potato song. I want to like 
rejig it's so hot but they're a band for children so there was like four dudes originally now i think there's five and there's a girl in the I, know, I do know that song i know the hot potato song I do? do know the hot potato. Hot potato, hot potato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It is. Isn't it the Wiggles song? Oh, I know they sing it, but I don't know if it's there. Oh, I don't know. I thought it was a Wiggles original, maybe not. Yeah. So that is uh, a twist on hot potato, but hot to topic, hot Most to topic. List, can we just a cliff note for people like too long didn't read who don't know who the Wiggles are? This is what it is in a nutshell. Four to five grown men dressed in different coloured skivvies <laughs> singing to children. That's, yeah. Not They'd creepy at all. Probably drive a white van and offer candy. Sounds like a BBC court date. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. BBC, uh, are we going to play on that? No. no okay. that's... <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that out there. There's, as there's everything, every flavour in this podcast. Can't believe, isn't there? can't believe you didn't applause my joke. Hey. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I, I also have a slow clap on this soundboard. We're not doing that yet. Hot oh, topic. What we, is it today? Okay. We are going to ask you, George, at Flex Success, as being a Flex Success coach, you know that we care for value. We don't just take people on, set their macros. It's not a two-minute thing. We take time and attention. We know that the more clients we take on, the more time it takes us which is fine because it's one-on-one coaching and that's the cost of it. What do you think of coaches that take on like a hundred plus clients? Not only that, that boast about it. They're like, I currently have 130 on the books, only 10 spots left or boast about doing like, Oh, I, can you believe it? I'm so efficient. I just did 20 check-ins in an hour. What do you think? I mean, screams red flags to me like logically in a day you've got 24 hours now most coaches are also potentially bodybuilders or people chasing some kind of physique goal so they're going to want to factor in training meal prep their own social life alongside their work hours so if you're handling 100 clients a week say if you split them up nicely and you was doing somewhere around like 20 per day five days of the week that doesn't leave a lot of time in the day to do anything else bar that that's if you're just 100% focusing on giving the actual attention to detail that is required of one-to-one coaching. Mm. So you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't train, you just just exist to coach. What like, about admin and like client one. calls? <laughs> exactly. What about other consultations? What about paid consoles? Like, yeah. No one is just doing that alone. They no. have all got other goals alongside it. They have a life to live. So it just seems unlogical and it would, it would just scream a big red flag to me that if someone says they've got 100 plus clients, surely you need to start asking, well, are they actually coaching these one-to-one as they should be applying that correct attention to detail? Or are they just kind of punching out like pre-programmed training programs, like the the biscuit templates and kind of giving everyone the same setup and diet? Like there's a few questions you need to start asking. And if you're someone who's got a coach who's got maybe a hundred plus clients, are you receiving the attention to detail you really need? Like Mm. ask yourself is the time your coach is giving you, is it really worth what you're paying here to achieve your goal? Are you seeing the results you want? Or maybe is this a problem that you see within their own setup? It's mm. taken away from them. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I wonder if some people are only getting five minutes from their coach and they feel like they're happy with that because the bar is set so low by so many people. Well, this is, this is the difficult thing is like, what is your prior experience as a client with previous coaches? Like, mm. If this coach's performance is lower than somebody else's, but better than their previous coach, they're still going to feel like they've got an upgrade. 
Uh, the, the problem I have with like the whole concept around coaches promoting the number of their clients over the quality of their client results more prevalently, especially on social media, is that the motivation's wrong. The motivation is I have X amount of number and number is associated with dollars. Yes. You know, therefore, I am successful. Um, yeah. And like for me, that motivation is non-existent. Like I would much rather charge more and do less in regards to the numbers of clients so I can have relationships and, and build. You have more time to give to each person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Really enjoy my work than just be essentially going through an administration role every day. Like, cool, man, thanks for this. There you go. Cool, man, thanks for this. There you go. Like, eh. <laughs> You know. I, I think that's the big question when people ask about your pricing and stuff and, and they see that it might be higher than the, the average of these people that are taking on 100 clients which are 150 quid per month because of that workload there's a reason you see a, a relationship of cost being more with a coach who's going to give you more that quality over quantity approach is there for a reason and it's so that you can then apply like you said reduce your workload but give more to these people give them more value for the service they're receiving which obviously would cost slightly more but it is like you said on the, uh, the difference between a, a client coming from a previous coach and then maybe thinking they're getting a level up just because there's one or two slight improvements on their past experience i think that the level playing field we're in at the moment it's not hard to separate yourself from the middle of the pack of what we see in the industry just by actually caring just by being a human being and caring about your job and wanting to do this for the right reasons mm. instantly puts you up into that upper epsilon of coaches yeah and i think this is the difference between um having a standard and having an expectation so i think the expectation um People don't expect all that much because the quality is so low and they think, oh, my clients are only expecting two minutes from me. But it's not necessarily about that. It's about your standards and it doesn't matter what other people are doing. It doesn't matter how low everyone's expectations are. Your standards matter and that shouldn't change, right? It's like if you're in, in the dating pool, <laughs> you might expect a bunch of creeps, but that doesn't mean you settle for that because your standards don't change regardless of your expectations. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really recall any conversation with us, Liz, where we've kind of ever said, like, all right, so how do we get more clients? We've always said, like, how can we give more to the client? Yeah, we've and always then, had a cap. And too. that's always incurred some level of a price increase over time because we get better as coaches, therefore our value goes up, right? Mm -hmm. But it, the, the conversation has never been about how do we get more as a number, but rather how do we improve, get better, and therefore we become a premium service, you yeah? know? It's funny, we were talking to um, a business coach a while ago and he was like, cool, cool, so what's the target? And we were like, oh, the target is to help people do this, this and this. They're like, okay, okay, so what's the target? I was like, to make it clearer to our clients what the instructions are. Okay, but and he, he just kept referring to it. And we were like, yeah, these are, he's like, no, 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 the money. We were like, oh, we hadn't even thought of that. Like it hadn't, we need to pay the bills, of course. We're not a fucking charity, but um, that's not the overarching goal yeah you know and that probably is for people who just take on more and more and more and i think they shoot themselves in the foot because eventually they get a shit name because clients aren't getting the results they don't feel heard they don't feel respected they don't refer and then all of a sudden it goes from all these clients eventually to not enough mm. it's definitely a negative more so than a positive because a lot of what i've seen in our industry reputation and what you can offer as a coach is what's going to carry you in your career not so much who you've worked with or what you've done as results so you see the coaches that put their uh, list as long as anything in their bio of top three placings yada yada x amount of ifbb pros like that doesn't carry the weight as much as 
your reputation as a coach does. And when you are handling 100 clients per week, you will just get a bad name for yourself and a bad reputation. And it's so hard to build up a good reputation as, as a coach who cares about their clients and really is client-centric. And it's very, very easy to lose that reputation as quick as anything, just from one bad review. It, it really can shatter a career. So they are massively shooting themselves in the foot in fleet of trying to attain uh, you know, that uh, money or mm. materialistic things. Yeah, it sucks too because the the people that coaches like this usually put out on social are usually the bigger names. They attract yes. the smaller fish. The fish pay the bills, but yes. get the least service. While the big fish, or typically, you know, the predators, are really probably even maybe not paying or getting it cheaper because they're the ones that that bring it all and in. getting an awesome service, right? So the coach can say, "I'm coaching this yeah. athlete. How amazing!" Yeah. So the yeah. best service goes to the non-payer or the low payer, and the high payer gets the worst service. But the high payer is what's paying the whole system because it's they don't have as much. Influence. Really shitty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And coaches just shouldn't be playing favorites like that because everyone just because someone's more popular on social media or has won more titles doesn't make them any more or less important as a human being and that's who we're working with we're working with well, humans we're not working with social media followings the other two the, the best coach yesterday was just another coach until they got someone someone found them yeah. but they were doing the same thing yesterday is what they're doing the day after they became you know quote-unquote famous yeah uh, even to, to try and drive some motivation towards coaches that are getting caught up in the numbers game I, and this i just thought of as you mentioned this before george about reputation and, and all the rest of it is that one of the benefits of being an unreal coach and caring about people and being client-centric, and let's just say pick a number and say only dealing with 40, is that those 40 people will refer you, right? So yeah. if you lose one or two, it doesn't matter because you'll get a one or two referral. But if your business is solely controlled by promotional-based stuff, ads, advertisements, and you're trying to get the numbers game, you're always going to have to spend money to try and leverage more money, and you'll probably end up worse off financially anyway. Mm. you know and it's way more stressful yeah yeah but maybe we should make the point that we're talking about one-on-one coaching here there are some like fine group programs where you're not promised a one-on-one service and that's not what we're talking about here yeah we're talking about supposed to be legitimate individual yeah yeah Mm. yeah were you ever at a point george where you thought like i need 100 clients no i I was originally mentored by a very, very good coach, uh, Rob Whitfield, uh, Team LRF in the UK. He's very well-known in the UK. Probably one of the best female coaches we have if we look at results-based approach. Um, and he kind of heavily drilled it into me from day one that the quality of your service is everything. You know, the numbers you have there, yeah, it means you're earning more money, but if you're not providing good quality service, you're not going to retain those customers and they are going to leave you. And maybe that's not the goal of the client to keep them forever. But when we're thinking about competitive athletes, we're kind of, you know, moving on to the next goal after each goal is met. And you kind of want to be able to retain them as best as possible and build those relationships. So from early on, it was kind of drilled into me that the focus should be around the service you provide to a client and being the best you can as a coach, as opposed to trying to bring in the most amount of money. But a lot of people that started around the same point as me, and this is not going to be me trying to like blow my own trumpet or boast at all. But a lot of people that start at the same point of me have not progressed in the same timeline as what I have, even though they've gone with the telemarketing, advertising, push, 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 100, hundreds of clients. And they're still spinning their wheels doing the same thing. Whereas me being focused on just trying to be the best coach I can and, and educate myself and keep moving forwards to be that better person for my clients has led to me kind of progressing at a lot faster rate and moving up the rankings of, of who I get to work with and the kind of people that I'm now 
dealing with. Uh, so I think there's a good merit there for people that are up and coming that focusing on the money will only leave you spinning your wheels doing the same thing. What a paradox. Really, yeah. 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 I even just and saw a parallel crazy. there. It so seems good. it should be the one. If you was going to, you're starting out as someone who's looking to make this a career, you'd probably think like, hey, I need to earn X amount of money to be comfortable, pay my bills, whatever. And you can, you can see how easily it is to become addicted into chasing the money and chasing the dollar for those materialistic things. But I think it shows more about your character as a person than it does you as a coach more so than anything. Yeah. yeah. What well, was I going to say? It drew parallels. And you just said it, it doubled down for me, George. You just really sold it. Is that James Clear concept of goal focus? Versus process focus. Well, I say process. I can never remember it's systems, isn't it? Yeah, we've all read the book, um, yeah. Atomic Habits. So that's the, the author of the book, James Clear. Yeah, so sales-focused individuals would be the goal-focused people. I want 100 clients. Therefore, every time they don't have 100, they fail. So they work further towards trying to get 100 clients. And the whole time they're forgetting about the process, which is being a coach. Yeah. Whereas you focus on the process and now they're there. So, man, that thing applies to a lot of shit. That is a good book. Atomic. Everyone should read Atomic Habits. Mm. I've read it twice. Yeah, I think I saw um, Nathan from Osteo, the Osteo. So surfing. Oh, Nathan Kelly. We had him on episode three, I think it was. It was about pain. And I think he put up a. I think it was Atomic Habits in his hand, and it was like he said, fifth time reading this, get something new every time. Yeah. Yeah. Good book. It is. is You really do. You really, really do. I think there's parts of it that apply to you certain certain points in your life, which is why I've picked up a couple of times, and I've just found gravitated towards it for that specific reason. I don't know what it was at the time, but eventually you come across and you go, that really applies to my life right now. Yeah. I needed this. So it's yeah. like it's got its own subconscious pulling you in. It does, it does. Well, I imagine he wrote it in blocks too and there were parts where he's probably like, shit, this needs some work. You know, and then he yeah. reread it and fixed that. So he would be the same. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I liked the idea that um, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's just, just a little thing. It doesn't matter. But he made the point, I think it was like very early on in the book, maybe even before chapter one, just in the intro, about uh, an aeroplane going in a particular direction. If they're just one degree off over the space of like a three-hour plane trip, something like that, they're going to end up in a totally different country just because of that that one degree difference because over time it compounds. Mm. Um, And and I thought that was such a good metaphor for, for life. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, mm. it, was a, it was LAX, um, LA, California to New York. And if they changed the, the trajectory off the runway one degree, it went from New York to, I uh, can't remember what, the, it was really right far up, like near Canada border. Right. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Mm. The, the difference in change, what you think is only small compounds into such a huge difference later on. Yeah. Yeah, I love that book. So good. Now, we, the cherry on top of this podcast, Cupcake, is a would you rather do you have one for George or do I have one for George? Um, it's a boring, I've thought of one just now. It's a boring one. You can come up with a juicy one. Oh, I don't know how juicy it is, the one I can think of on the spot, but I'm ready. Would you rather? Okay. Not for you. This is for George. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, okay, I'm listening. Have to prep once a year, every year for the next 10 years or <sighs> never prep again. Oh. Can you finish this current prep that he's doing? Or would he have to quit now, six weeks out? <laughs> that sucks no i'll say after this one okay so he finishes this season and then he's got to do a prep every year for the next 10 so years. he has to compete every year for the next 10 years yep. or never compete or again. never compete again realistically the lifespan of a competitive bodybuilder could go into their mid-40s so what i'm going to do is play the long haul here and take 10 years off and get absolutely huge and then compete when i'm old 
<laughs> I like it. No, it wasn't it never compete again or compete every year for the next 10 years? Oh, yeah, no, that was that yeah, was yeah. the... Um, oh, I thought you created a gem no. there. You said, I'm just no. going to get massive and compete later. No, well, that still applies. I'm just going to get massive, focus on coaching and not compete again then because competing every year would just be unfeasible from a works perspective, a relationship. Perspective, relationship perspective. It's just, it's just not feasible, man. I'm not one of those that seeks to get on stage every single year. It's... Yeah, more important. At least you got to finish this prep, you know. <laughs> and that's a great segue too. You know what? It would be a great way for you to finish, George, because we're coming to your last comp this year. We booked our flights. Yes. <laughs> I literally, no, I'd be sick. I've really wanted to see you guys for ages, trying to work out when we could get out to find you. That is the best news ever. So I didn't well, even set that up. I was just like, we've nearly forgotten to tell him. We did. And before we pressed record, we told George that we have um, a surprise for him that his fiance knows about that. His coach Joe knows about, but we haven't told him yet. So yep. that's the bomb. Well, I better make sure I up my game then. Last show's the one where it matters. <laughs> At least that's what we're told, the 18th. So we were actually gonna surprise you and just like rock up the day before your comp to England. But now I we're actually I'm gonna be in England a week before and we're leaving the day after your comp. So it's just we can't hide where we are for a whole yeah. week. So because yeah, yeah. they're um I'm repaying the favor that Rory, my client, came in uh, to my show from Ireland when I was there. So I'm going to his show. And I thought you were going to be competing at the same show. I just assumed, you know, like an idiot. You would compete on the same weekend, but just at a different show. So um, so we're going to go to his show on the Saturday, on Sunday or the Saturday, and then we're going to come to your show the next week. Nice. That'd be sick. No, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys. That's yeah, just made cool. it there. That's made my day. Zoe um, was saying... <laughs> if you surprised me, I think like a day out, if I'd seen you, I probably would have just been an emotional. No, I would have just been in the crowd. I would have for sure just done it on the day. They would have just flashed you from the from the stage. Or I would have walked into your wherever you are in the night before carving up and just provided you with a packet of um crack of um I've forgotten them because I haven't eaten them. The so cracker jacks? No. Is it cracker jacks? Rice cakes, the camera ones. Oh, the best ones. Oh, oh. I found um blueberry and vanilla. Oh. They are a contender. They're not, um, not quite the same sweet fix, but the flavours is equally as, as good. Nice. Okay, we'll have to look out for them. They do not have these in Portugal or Croatia. Rice cakes suck in Portugal and Croatia. They're just plain and they're lame. Well, supermarkets here, um, particularly Croatia, are much smaller. So if you want peanut butter, you have one choice. If you want barbecue sauce, you have one choice. If mm. you want soft drinks, you've got like three choices. Even the little pretty pretty um, scarce in Croatia. Mm, they're all small. So we, we can't wait to come back to England because when we were in England last time, we were there between January and like, I don't know, April, April or yeah. something like that. So it was winter and it was cold all the time. It was dark. And I've always said I want to go back to England in, um, in spring. So here we are and we get to see George. You kind of missed. We had our like five minute heat wave this week. <laughs> you kind of missed the only good bit of weather we actually have each year. Well, I don't want it to be 40, man. It's already too hot here in Croatia and 35. <laughs> she's tough uh, it'll be nice in spring i just want to do because dean was prepping when we were in england last time so we couldn't like just have spontaneous days out mm. so i want to do that yeah there's a lot more you can enjoy together that way yeah yeah so we'll see you we'll have dinner with you the night of your comp you down yeah perfect place uh because it's in st albans there's a place called craft and cleaver which is just a big meat it's like a yeah. barbecue place it's great yeah I thought we were going to junk load at McDonald's the morning of his, of his show. <laughs> junk load. Damn it. Full cheesecake. Five guys, half a dollar's our protocol. <laughs> half? Come on now. <laughs> one patty, one pill. 
<laughs> That's another shift. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, thank uh, you for coming on the show once again. It was great fun. Always a pleasure, guys. And we'll get you back on to talk about um, fatigue management for training because we just spoke about it for nutrition this time. Perfect. Oh, yeah.